Hello, dear listeners. This is Dennis again from Exchange Me podcast show. Uh, as a reminder, I'm um, president of a Rotary Club, Cherkasy Center, founder of the Leaders Fund, and also a co-host of this show, uh, Exchange Me podcast about alumni of exchange programs and also their stories and how the uh, travels to different countries uh, countries shaped their identity and life path. And I'm honored to be here with Jeff Gosby from California. Uh, hi, Jeff. How are you, Denise? Oh, well, turbulent times uh, in Ukraine. And I wanted to let you know, and also our listeners, uh, that we have a special series of this podcast called Global Response, since it is war in Ukraine right now. And we are trying to get to know what other people abroad think about this situation. And I couldn't imagine a better guest as you, uh, since uh, you are also involved in a Rotary. Uh, you are a member of Rotary Club Santa Rosa, uh, which is helping a lot to our club, to Cherkasy and Ukraine in general. I think we can start with a short introduction of you. Uh, you have a long list of uh, different achievements. Uh, you are a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley and you studied at Stanford, but you also went to several exchange. You studied abroad several times. So why don't you introduce yourself and highlight what you think is important? Sure, I'll, I'll give you an introduction, including um, my different connections to youth exchange since youth exchange is a big theme for this program. So uh, my name is Jeff Gosby. I'm born and raised in Santa Rosa, California, which is uh, a city about, uh, about 60 kilometers north of San Francisco, uh, about an hour drive from automobile. Um, and uh, as is typical in America, because we are a nation of immigrants and there's a lot of change, uh, I was born in 1968, I'm 54 years old. And when I was born in Santa Rosa, there were about 40,000 people in my town. Today, there are 180,000 people. So we've had a lot of growth. Um, and um, um, for me, youth exchange has been a huge part of my shaping me as a, as a person. Um, my, um, everyone in my family are in the medical profession. My father uh, was a doctor. My mother is a physical therapist. Every, brothers, grandparents, everybody else were doctors. But my father also was very interested in all sorts of international affairs and languages. And I'm very thankful that when I was seven years old, my father started uh, with uh, private French lessons for me because he had quite an interest in French. And as you know, uh, the earlier you learn a language, the more you're able to internalize it, develop a good accent. Um, and so very early on, I was interested in languages. And uh, uh, not long after that, when I was uh, in high school, I'd studied Latin. And then in high school was also at our local college was taking German and Russian. And then when I went to Stanford, I studied Polish because uh, as you'll hear later, we had an exchange with a well-known university in Krakow, Poland. So I needed to learn Polish. And then I also studied um, old Germanic languages. They had some very special classes at Stanford where I was able to study eight uh, ancient Germanic languages, languages like Gothic, Old Norse, Old English, uh, Saxon, wow. uh, etc. 
uh, Middle High German, etc. So I studied eight different Old German languages, and then they had a class in dialectology. So I, I learned twelve different dialects of German. So uh, I, I still speak and understand pretty well, um, probably best in French and German. Um, uh, I don't have much opportunity now to speak Polish, but having gone to university in Poland, um, I, I know a fair amount of Polish. I can certainly understand some Ukrainian and Russian and speak a little bit. Um, and then from traveling all over the world, you know little bits of many other languages. Because as you know, once you learn to speak more than one or two languages, uh, you have the ability to learn every language, even especially you know, a few Slavic languages, a few Germanic languages, a few uh, Romance languages, and it gets pretty easy. So it also helps you unlock other cultures because you can understand them better, right? Ab absolutely. And one of the things I loved to do when I was an exchange student, and I'll, I would tell you, I was on a private exchange when I was 15 to France. And then I spent a summer at a German high school in Bavaria when I was 17 in 1985. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. And then I spent most of my junior year of college uh, in 1989 living in communist Poland uh, before, during, and after the fall of communism in Poland. So uh, these were amazing experiences. But one of the things I love to do is take tours in uh, two and three times in different languages, because of course the language has a lot to do with how a people and a culture thinks. And so when I was, whether I was in Western Europe or Eastern Europe and I'm touring, you know, uh, uh, a cathedral or a castle or a museum, I would take the tour with the Germans. I would take the tour with the French. I would take the tour with the Americans. And the tours were almost always very different. Uh, and the focus of the tours, I found very often the tours with the Germans were very precise, would, would get into great detail about how things were built, the engineering, the facts, the details. It was very precise. The tours with the French were um, much more, uh, you know, being a romance language, I found it was all very often about the spirit, the passion, the culture. Um, you know, they would have some facts, but it was a very different focus than the German tour. And then, to be honest, the tour with the Americans, and very often it was the British tour, because back then there were not a lot of Americans in Eastern Europe, but particularly uh, where there were Americans, the tour was much more simplistic. It, I think Americans had a different level of connection to European history. And, um, um, you know, I would, of course, sometimes take them in Polish or Russian too, but it was, I found it was a fascinating way to see what was emphasized and how you describe something because, you know, the language is the most deep connection to how a population thinks and chooses to express its ideas. But also a historical context, as you mentioned, that you've been into uh, in, in Europe in communist times, and you had an opportunity to observe uh, with your own eyes the fall of the Berlin Wall. So that is of big interest to our listeners, and I think that uh, people. Uh, of your generation who also uh, were exchange students, they would have this nostalgic feeling to be there to witness that. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, um, you know, it really shaped 
who I am as a person. It shaped my course of studies and then my profession. So when I was an exchange student to um, Germany in 1985, it was a summer program through the American Field Service or AFS, which was a organization that was founded by people that came to volunteer as ambulance drivers during the First World War in France. And they do exchange programs all over the world. So I had you know, a summer exchange. And when I arrived uh, in the, the town, I lived in a village outside of the town of Coburg in, in Franken, in Franconia, which is the very northern part of Bavaria. And as it turns out, the area I was living in, the town of Coburg, was very close to an area that was surrounded on three sides by the East German Wall. Next, uh, Jeff goes about uh, brewing beer in high school and college and doing different sports and activities. Unfortunately, we have to skip this part of the description of his German town life because uh, we don't have much time. But you can ask for an access to the full episode by donating to supportukrainenow.org. Just send a screenshot at exchangemepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. I think that foreign exchange students who come to America, you know, they love the fact that their experience, in some ways, it's like what they expect from movies. There are many movies and you know, Hollywood films about uh, life in, you know, the American typical high school experience, you know, with cars and sports and girlfriends and boyfriends. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about a lot more than just the academic education um, and so in general, and this is a broad generalization. Um, but talking about stereotypes, did you have any yeah. stereotypes before going to Germany or even France on that private exchange? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you always have stereotypes. Um, you know, one thing that is interesting, my, you know, being a typical American, you know, I have family, my father's grandparents came from Russia. And back when they came to this country in 1905 and 1906, it was the Russian Empire. There, there really was no Poland. There was no Ukraine. Um, one, and my grandmother, great-grandmother, my father's grandmother was from Smila, which uh, you know as being very close to Cherkasy. Which is Cherkasy uh, region, exactly. View a video presentation by Jeff on social media, uh, including my LinkedIn, uh, Denis Andrushenko, or listen to the full episodes that you can access by donating to supportukrainenow.org. Just send us a screenshot to exchangemepodcast at gmail.com. By the way, we made a separate episode uh, on Global Response series with Jeff, where he talks more about his experience as a Rotarian in California. Why do you choose to stay in Santa Rosa? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to address this question first in a general way, and then I'm going to address it specific to me. Um, uh, so I, one thing I will say when I think back on my experiences living in Eastern Europe in 1989, and during that time, I was living in Krakow, um, and I had the opportunity to travel extensively because I had Polish student papers. So I took trips as far as from Krakow all the way to Istanbul in visiting Ceausescu's Romania, being in a war zone in Bulgaria, throughout Yugoslavia, uh, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, 
and many other places. The only place we couldn't go into was Albania, which was closed back then during the days of uh, Enveroxa. But uh, a big philosophical question and discussion among many students was the freedoms we had as Americans and what life was like there. And there's a certain amount of guilt that I felt at first because my life was so well off compared to the people I was with. You know, I realize I never have to worry about uh, long lines to get bread or coffee or sugar or gasoline or meat. And when I was living in Poland, they were still rationing all of those items 45 years after the war. I had ration cards as a student. So it was a difficult adjustment because, you know, you would feel guilty about how good our life was and why their life had to be different. But I very quickly realized that people would change places with me in a, in a heartbeat if they could, that that they didn't view my having it was the reason they didn't have it. Um, and one thing I realized that you also see playing out today in Russia is, you know, some of the early uh, slogans of the Russian revolution, you know, chleb uh, but, but, you know, people just wanting to have bread was, was so important. And the way the Soviet system developed, you know, you didn't have much, but you had reliable supply of bread, cigarettes, vodka, you know, the people who were retired, the pensioners would get paid regularly. And I think one of the great things about our system in the West and particularly in, in America is you can accomplish anything. However, there is a lot of responsibility that is on the individual and our society is primarily focused on the individual and, and really believes in and protects the rights of a person individually to do whatever they want to do. There's good sides to that and there's bad sides to that because if you know you want to uh, create uh, a company like Apple Computer or Amazon or whatever, you can start with nothing and you can change the world, whether it's in business or politics. However, if you have bad intentions or if you have you don't have the ability or you have problems because of race or because of uh, drug or substance abuse problem, you know, there's not the safety net that there is in most of Europe and particularly in the Soviet system. So in the Soviet system, you know, everyone was kind of equally poor. Uh, you know, it was different later when you had the oligarchs and you had a, a big disparity in wealth, but the, the, the system starting in 1917 and 18, you know, early on, there was of course this Marxist ideology of from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, but we know it didn't work out in practice the way it worked out in theory. So, um, I'll get back to the question as it relates to me personally, but I guess what I'm saying is I realized uh, living in Eastern Europe that, you know, the, there was, there were, uh, there was a floor and a ceiling and there wasn't much difference between the floor and the ceiling. You could have your basic needs. You were not going to go hungry. You would have a place to live. It might just be a very, you know, typical, you know, post-World War II concrete flat or, or apartment building, which was 
not very nice, but you at least had a roof over your head. You had enough food. You couldn't have luxuries or Western goods, but you had food, you had a job, you had a system that took care of your medical needs. But as you mentioned, in the West, people are responsible individuals. And uh, in in Soviet bloc, it was collective uh, irresponsibility. So nobody is responsible for anything. That's right. And so in in that's in, in our system, there is you know unlimited potential. You know, the 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 floor and the ceiling is a big gap compared to in the communist system. But the bad news is even though our country is the wealthiest in the world, we have tens of thousands of people who are homeless. We have millions of people in prisons, we have millions of people who suffer from very poor health care or uh, whatever. So our system is far from perfect. And, you know, this, these are some of the things by going on exchange that you experience, uh, which is uh, how different societies and cultures think. And America is kind of an extreme. We tend to be focused first on the individual and second on the collective. Uh, the country as a whole or or the group or community as a whole. But there are many other societies, China is a good example, where the individual almost doesn't matter. The individual has very little rights. It's all about what the government and society, and this is determined by a small number of people. And uh, of course, you have this also happening in the Soviet system or now uh, the Russian system, which is really a neo-Soviet system. So back to your question about um, my my work, let me even go back a little further. I want to say after I was an exchange student in Germany and I came back for my senior year of high school and I applied to universities and uh, one of I applied to Harvard and Yale and Stanford. Stanford was my top choice. And I remember on the application, one of the questions was if you were going to create a holiday, what holiday would you create and why? And for me, I established, I wanted to establish August 13th as a holiday. This was the day that uh, the Berlin Wall went up, August 13th, 1961. And it was, uh, you know, a, a holiday or time to remember people who are suffering in totalitarian regimes and to appreciate the freedoms we have. And the spring of 1989, I had been working at the Hoover Institution on war, revolution, and peace. This is one of the most famous, uh, very conservative Western think tanks. Uh, and I worked in their archives. I'll tell you more about that in a moment because it relates directly to Russia and Poland and so forth. But um, in the spring of 1989, Gorbachev came to Stanford and I actually got to meet him. And then uh, a, a fellow student that I'd had some classes with was being hired by Ernst and Young. And he got me an interview with Ernst and Young. And I saw so I had one job interview in June of 89, June of 80, uh, June of 1990. I graduated in June of 1990. I had one job interview and I was hired by Ernst and Young in New York City. I was uh, 20, 22 years old. Uh, going to have my first job. It was a big change to go from a city. Back then, Santa Rosa was about 100,000 people. It's almost doubled since 1990. Uh, so I went from a town of about 100,000 people to a city that had, you know, 
more than 10 million people during the daytime. I lived in Midtown Manhattan, worked for the firm Ernst & Young. And uh, when I started with Ernst & Young, we had one foreign employee, one expatriate living in Moscow. We had one employee. When I left Ernst & Young two years later, we had 500 employees in Eastern Europe and 100 Western employees. And we had expanded to uh, Ukraine and uh, throughout Russia, Poland, Czechoslovakia. So I started working there in August, 1990, and I worked there for two years. And you can imagine the history changes that happened in the Soviet Union from 1990 to 1992. So one of my very first projects um, in August of 1990 was they were bringing over, Ernst & Young had made a connection with the head of accounting for the Soviet Union. And this person was coming to the United States and wanted to understand how markets work, how accounting works. In the Soviet system, accounting had a lot to do with more like bookkeeping of counting, you know, that you have the five-year central plan and the government plan and you count the number of things that factories produce, but it's not like accounting in, in the Western system. Just so, way too simplistic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, my first experience, two weeks I've been hired, uh, and I'm, I'm 22 years old. Uh, I've never had a business class in my life. My, my, my expertise is in Soviet history and languages and so forth. And I am tasked with my boss to, to entertain this delegation of high-level Russian, this, they were Soviet at this time because in August 1990, the Soviet Union had not fallen. And so they sent over people like the head of the Central Bank for the Soviet Union, the head of accounting for the Soviet Union, the Minister of Industry for the Soviet Union. And our job was to explain to them how the system works. And so uh, we took them down and met with the head of the New York Stock Exchange, who explained how uh, stock markets work. We flew to Washington, D.C. and met with the head of the Securities Exchange Commission, who explained how securities regulation works. We met with members of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, very high-level people. And the irony was, I didn't know anything about how these things worked either, so I got to have my first education about how the Western markets work and accounting and regulations and so forth work as these were explained in very basic terms to Russians. And as a result of this, Ernst & Young was hired to help uh, the Russian Federation government, which was obviously just one of the 15 different governments within the Soviet Union, um, and we were hired in, in February of 1991. Our group went to Moscow in the, in the dead of winter to put on a seminar on how to value the entire economy. It was a valuation seminar. We used experts from Ernst & Young and met with the key leaders of the Moscow City Council, the Moscow Federation, or the Russian Federation government. This was the government that was under Boris Yeltsin before he became the head of uh, Russian Federation. A quick uh, question. Did you rely yeah. on um, additional uh, translators or did anyone on your team 
uh, was able to. Oh, yeah. to speak. My boss, my boss was originally from Russia. He was a Russian Jew who had immigrated in the late 70s to New York. And so here's the amazing thing. When we did this work in 1990, 1991, 1992, of course, the Soviet system had been going for 70 years. And uh, we had to prepare this high level education for the leaders of the Russian Federation government, for leaders of the city of Moscow on how to start valuing things. And the only dictionaries we could have access to were pre-1917, because since 1917, there were no uh, dictionaries or texts having to do with business. And as I understand it, the Russian word uh, pribyl uh, uh, can be used interchangeably for revenue and for profit. And of course, this is a very big difference. The revenue that you generate is very different than the profit that you earn from a business. Yes. And so we worked with Americans who were fluent in Russian. We did have simultaneous translation, but we went over in February of 1991 and spent three days in the Oktyabrskaya Hotel, which was the KGB-run private hotel for the Soviet, uh, the Central Committee of the Soviet Union and put on this valuation seminar. And then we were selected, you know, I remember in August of 1991 when Gorbachev was arrested and you had the putsch. Uh, and not long after that, of course, uh, Yeltsin came to power and uh, Ernst and Young was selected to work to uh, help privatize the uh, Russian industry sector, and we had a number of different meetings. We were expanding a lot of Western and local staff. Um, we also had a very interesting service that we developed. You could not do this now, but we had uh, a service called uh, uh, ESP, uh, elect uh, Evaluation and Selection of Partners. It was very difficult to get information in 1990, 1991, and we established a joint venture with a newspaper. You probably are familiar with Commerçant. Uh, Commerçant was a, uh, actually was a business newspaper before the Russian Revolution. And uh, because my boss's father published Russian newspapers in America, he had connections to the publishers of Commerçant. And Commerçant in the early 90s became a publication again, publishing about business and so forth. And we established a service where Western companies that were wanting to do a joint venture, uh, and we worked with Chevron and McDonald's and Coca-Cola and other very large Western firms that were wanting to invest billions of dollars in Russia, but they didn't know who to negotiate with. They didn't know what information was available. In our service, we were able, you know, they might pay us $50,000, $100,000, and we would, in a matter of a week or two, produce a report saying, okay, uh, Coca-Cola wants to buy this factory in this town. Here is the people who have authority. Here's the bank accounts. Here's the money they have. Who's, here's who's really in charge. Since Jeff brought up Solidarnost and mentioned his experience as an intern, I want to remind you about our Exchange Me podcast episode number five with Zhenia Vodopianova and the program that she was in charge, which is called Exchanges to Internships. Really interesting listen. 
please uh, go to a platform of your choice and find that one. You can also see, you can also view a lot of interesting episodes from different guests from various countries. That's all what we are about. So enjoy next. So we would get information, you know, Nalevo, right? Uh, the, the way you get information, you know, these reporters would talk to the secretary, maybe give her some cigarettes or some of this or that and get information. You couldn't do this in the Western world, but we, we were advising Western companies on how to deal with large amounts of foreign currency, on how to deal with tax laws that are changing. It was a fascinating time. I worked with Ernst & Young from 1990 to 1992 was a combination of helping advise the governments of Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, the you know the various states of the former Soviet Union on how to transition from communism to market capitalism. So we did a lot of very high level work, and then we also were working with large Western firms that were clients of Ernst and Young big oil companies, you know, we were working on trying to transform the oil uh, networks of Ukraine and Russia in 1990, 91, 92, uh, as well as large international projects. So that was my first experience. And so I went from studying the history to suddenly being on the ground floor where you couldn't study this at school. Even, you know, Newspapers were maybe the only resource that might have some information, but you weren't going to find books on the. Why I really wanted to highlight this because you and I, I want to state this: you were a part of the history. You helped the post-Soviet countries to transition. You know, you were one of the people uh, advising. So this is fascinating to me. Yeah, and that's why, from my personal experience, you know, I grew up in this, you know, being born in 1968, which is, of course, when Russia invaded uh, Czechoslovakia, and and uh, there was a lot of unrest. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so this is a world of the Cold War. Of you know, the main thing we were worried about was you know nuclear war, and there was this bifurcation of the world into the communist world with China and Russia and you have or the Soviet Union and the West. And, um, and then I remember Chernobyl in 1986. That was the year I graduated from high school. I was an exchange student in 1985 and 1989. And living in these places, the world I knew was one where there were two Germanys, there were two Koreas, there were, you know, this communist block and the Iron Curtain. And then I saw that come down and I started working in that world in 1990 when I graduated from Stanford. So I really was there at a perfect time. But, you know, but I will tell you the only way to make money in Russia in the early 90s was what Ernst & Young did, which was working for other Western firms who would pay us in dollars. You know, you couldn't make money because it was chaos. You know, one day, the government would decide that there's a 40% tax on revenues, and then it's a 40% tax on profits. And then they restrict this, but not that, but it depends if you pay them off or not. And, you know, it's a, it, you know, it was very eye-opening. And so uh, I, I worked there for, you know, in the early nineties, but then ultimately uh, I married and decided I wanted to leave New York city. I was, 
the firm, Ernst & Young, was ready to make me a partner in the firm at age 23 or 24 in Poland or somewhere in the Soviet Union or post-Soviet Union. But I decided if I were to go there, I would never have the opportunity to settle down, have a family, be part of a community. And I really like California. You know, when you grow up with a Mediterranean climate and enjoy the outdoors and, and the diversity you have in California in terms of, you know, deserts and beaches and mountains and, and all. So I chose to go back to the West because I really like the West. And so I came back to, to Santa Rosa. And, um, but what the other thing I will say about Ernst & Young and this, you know, when, when things started happening last fall in, as things heated up uh, with Russian troops massing along the border of Belarusia and uh, Western Russia along the Ukrainian, Eastern Ukraine and so forth, <clears throat> we were very concerned. But of course, these kinds of things had been happening before since Crimea in 2014. <clears throat> but when the invasion happened in February, it it was shocking to so many people. And I think my wife and I and our family and friends, people just felt sick to our stomach. It told me how different this was a few weeks later in March of this year, when Ernst & Young acknowledged after more than 33 years, they were pulling out of Russia. Um, you know, this is something I told you that when I joined Ernst & Young, they had one employee in the Soviet Union. And when I left in 1992, they had 500 employees. And I believe that um, Ernst & Young, as of this year, when they decided to end their relationship, uh, they had 4,000 employees in Russia. They have, I think, more than 1,000 employees in Ukraine. Uh, that told me this was a fundamental shift that despite being committed to Russia and, and the post-Soviet bloc from the late, you know, from 89, 90, 91, 92, from the very beginning and all of the commitment through the 90s and 2000s, um, all the way up to 2021, the fact that they would say after more than 30 years of investment and relationships and clients, that this was not workable. There was no way they could continue there. That, you know, was uh, kind of a gut punch to me. It, it sort of undid 30 plus years worth of work, even though I only worked there for a few years. Our group worked with McDonald's to establish and open the first McDonald's in Moscow in the late 80s. So that was Ernst & Young's group that did that. And I know when the war started, McDonald's chose to keep paying all of their Russian employees. And many Western firms kept paying their employees because they wanted to make sure that they were okay. So I know on some level for Ernst & Young, they have deep connections and relationships with, uh, with their employees who they have longstanding friendships and commitments and also deep connections to their clients. So it's not easy to turn their back or leave that. So from a moral standpoint and from a relationship standpoint and a humanitarian standpoint, I'm sure it was very 
difficult, but I think legally from a regulatory standpoint, they had, it became impossible. They simply couldn't do business. Putin's regime was making it impossible for Western companies to operate there. And also Western governments with sanctions were making it impossible for Western companies to continue to operate. And that frankly was the purpose of the sanctions was to cut off and isolate Russia from the Western system that, you know, so many people had worked for decades to have Russia become part of the global uh, economic system and also the global uh, political system. It's really a pity that uh, I feel that a lot of your effort was there as well, like to, to help them transition to market economy. And it was part of, of your legacy as well. I feel it. And then suddenly because of decision of one madman in, in Kremlin, like everything just rolls back at least three decades, at least because it could be even worse. We, we, we don't know what Russia will look like in five or 10 years. Yeah, no, this is true. Back to youth exchange, some things I should say, you know, I, I had an amazing education at Stanford University, um, but I tell everyone when talking about youth exchange and the power and value of youth exchange, that there is no better education than being an exchange student, that that, you know, the single best education I got was living overseas, being an exchange student. It was better than the education I got at Stanford University, which is among the very best universities in the world. And it's because you're on the ground experiencing firsthand for yourself. Uh, and also, frankly, um, when you're an exchange student, you have to think on your feet. You have to become adaptable, resourceful. <clears throat> you have to be open. To, you have to be willing to accept change because it's constant change. And that's a very powerful thing. That made me very adaptable um, and has enabled me to work in very different professions since that time. All right, guys, thank you for listening to this episode of Exchange Me Podcast. It was me, Denis Andrushenko, your co-host of the show. And please listen to new episodes that we promise to deliver more often than before, and including the Global Response Series. Stay tuned.